0: Amen. And thank you, Matt and the crew up on the third floor for Mike for leading us on the first floor for this team here for that wonderful preparation and song for our time together and study of God's word. My name is Eric Barton and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus. And I'm delighted to see all of you. I've tried to make my way across all the floors and then catch my breath and now make it back down to the second floor to say good morning and welcome on this Memorial Day weekend where it's not raining. And that's news these days. So whatever floor you might be on in our building here this morning or watching remotely, I do want to say welcome. And I am praying, have been praying, that the Lord would use our time together in his word, by his spirit, as his people, to communicate, to connect with you. As Mike's already mentioned, as Matt emphasized we want to walk out of here changed that our needle will have moved ever so slightly in our understanding and engagement with God. So this morning I want to start off in a typical fashion. I want to talk about Jesus. Well, because I love Jesus and I want to talk about Jesus. We actually know a lot about Jesus, thankfully. He's not a not a mystery. He's long foretold all throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that Messiah would come, the fulfiller, the, the bringer of all of the blessings of the covenant with Abraham, the one who would be the rightful, forever and ever everlasting king in the line of David, the one who would inaugurate, initiate, and instigate a new covenant. All these things, we know a lot about him and what he was supposed to do. We are to have the Old Testament build in us all this anticipation and preparation. Not only that, but we have this awesome Renaissance art That makes Jesus look like he's a UCAL Berkeley hippie with, you know, a narrow nose, blue eyes, a mullet, a toga, and some Birkenstocks. That's not what Jesus looked like, incidentally. So if you think about Jesus, think about Jesus rightly. He was an ancient Near Eastern man. He did not look at all like that. But what we really had to give us a wonderful picture into the life of Jesus is all four gospel accounts. These gospel accounts are designed to tell us something marvelous about Jesus and therefore the plan of God. The Gospel of Matthew is written so that we will understand that Jesus is the rightly King of Israel. The Gospel of Mark is written so that we will understand that Jesus is the long anticipated and awaited suffering servant. The Gospel of Luke is written so that we will understand that Jesus is the man. He is the commander of the hosts of the armies of God, and he is the man. The Gospel of John is very simply written so that we will know that Jesus is God. Now, Jesus spent a long time in those Gospel accounts with his uh, disciples, and we see as we drive through those Gospel narratives, as he approaches ever increasingly the time when he will go to his death, burial, that he grows in sort of uh, pathos, he grows in intensity and in feeling. He's referred to as a man of sorrows because as he draws closer and closer to what he knows will be the time when he meets his death, and even worse, separation and fracture from the fellowship he's always had with the Father and the Spirit, he becomes increasingly somber and very, very, I might even say, vulnerable emotionally. But I want you to imagine for just a moment, and I, I want to emphasize and restate and repeat myself and be redundant. I want you to just imagine, this is not actually what happened, we know that, but I just want you to imagine that somehow, some way, Christ was able to accomplish the bringing of the gospel, the atoning of sin of mankind, without having to actually go to the cross. I just want you to imagine that for a moment. It should be almost impossible for you to, because we know that that was required, but just imagine it, that Jesus knows as he approaches the end of his life, that it's not going to end in pain, sorrow, frustration, humiliation, and shame. He's going to do whatever he's going to do, and then he's going to ascend on high. Just imagine the way that Jesus would have lived his life right up until the end. It's hard for us to. But it's not actually merely a theoretical question. It's not really a theoretical philosophical notion because it's very pertinent and practical to us. Because of the gospel... We actually get to live in a very similar way, the same kind of life that Jesus lived in his earthly ministry, and yet we will never have to go to any cross because that is finished. So what if Jesus didn't have to go to the cross? How would he actually engage with people like his disciples, who sometimes frustrated him, who didn't quite understand. How would Jesus, if that was the case, if he wasn't gonna have to go to the cross, how would he have interacted with the Pharisees, those do-good, legalistic, self-righteous people? How would Jesus have interacted with his brothers, his half-brothers, and his sister, and his mother? Would that not have changed everything? It absolutely would have. Jesus was walking around pre crucifixion in a very, very gospel life. How would our lives be if we lived likewise? That's a whole thrust, what the New Testament is trying to tell us, that we would live like Jesus would. And it's not an impossibility. Jesus relied 100% on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the will of his Father, and the surrounding community to live and do the earthly ministry that he pulled off. Which leads us to our big idea for this morning as we are in the book of Titus. It goes very simply like this. The gospel is for all of life. I feel like for the last uh, several years and hopefully for the next 20 years, if I can do nothing else but to expand the enormity, the grandeur, the glory of the gospel in every hearer's heart, I will have had a successful ministry. If I do nothing else, budgets may collapse, the walls might collapse, not this morning. But if nothing else gets done, as long as people have an expansion and an affection for the glory and the grandeur and the expanse of the gospel, take me Jesus. Because it literally is to envelop and encompass and shoot through every single aspect of our life. The gospel is for all of life. We are in a very short sermon series in the New Testament book of Titus. It is one of the two pastoral epistles, Paul or, uh, two recipients. Uh, Paul writes two to his protege Timothy in Ephesus. He writes one to Titus. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul's introduction where he sets the stage for the gospel. And again, when I say gospel, I don't merely mean the good news that you die and go to heaven one day. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the rightly The rightful king has landed. He's come out of glory, out of heaven, and he's grabbed the edge or the border of the coming kingdom and he's dragged it back in time and he's pinned it to our reality at the cross. And so now we, Gentile and Jew alike, one in the Son, have the capacity to live as though that kingdom were already in place. It's this wonderful overlap thing. Gospel people are different Not because of how they vote, not because of where they live, not because of what they drive, not because of what they eat or don't eat. They are different because they are gospel people and they live as though the kingdom has already come only because it has. Now that's the gospel that infiltrates and inculcates every single aspect of our walking around lives. And Paul says, that's the gospel. And then he begins to talk about influence. How do we organize? How do we set the stage for these churches? This present age is, is difficult and it's passing away, but oh, I have such good news, Paul says. The king of kings has dragged the veil back and it was very faint at first. But as we go through time, we learn more, we grow more. The Holy Spirit illumines more of his word. The people of God come together in closer proximity community and we're getting there. How much longer? I have no idea. And anyone that you're listening to on a podcast or a website or a book or a magazine article that tells you we're closer They're right, and that's all they know. Ignore any other specificity, okay? I know they've now got like pomegranate, fruity pebbles, and so that must be the sign of the apocalypse. No, it isn't. They're delicious. It has nothing to do with the end of time whatsoever. So we want to look at now in the book of Titus. I'm going to begin reading in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We're just going to read these first. 10 verses, extremely practical, extremely pertinent. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The apostle Paul writes to his protege, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or thieves, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is God's Word. You might remember that we finished chapter 1, and it has this strange little parenthetical insert We've been talking about the importance of good and sound doctrine, that sound doctrine must be taught. And then there's what I call the bad news sandwich in verses 10 to 16, where it's all this false teaching and heresy and errant thoughts that are creeping into the church. But right on the backside, we have chapter two, verse one, that is again, teaching sound doctrine. Now, what Paul's going to give us here is what we have also in Ephesians chapter five. It's a household code. How are they supposed to actually do life in this context on the island of Crete when Christianity has been a completely novel, brand new thing? So Paul, like he did to his protege with Timothy in Ephesus in Ephesians 5, writes a household code. He writes one for Titus as well, so that they know how to do everyday practical walking around life. The gospel, Paul wants us to know, is for all of life. So here in verse 1, he says, but as for you, and it's a very strong contrast. Here's all these false teachers in verses 10 to 16 of the previous chapter, but you, not you, Titus, you <laughs> Gentile, you, no, 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 no. You don't get to be a part of all that errant discussion and false doctrine and heresy. No, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, I want to camp here for just a moment because I love Titus one. I love Titus 2.1 because Paul, interestingly, uses a very uh, surprising word. It's not what we would expect. He says, teacher, but that's really not. The word is laleo. It simply means to, to speak or to talk. It's not kerugma for preach or it's not proclaim. It's, nothing, it's just talk. Talk in ways that accord with, that match up to, that harmonize with sound doctrine. I hear people all the time say, well, we don't need to talk about the Bible because everyone already gets it now. We just need to have like a philosophical discussion. False. I also hear people say, we don't need to talk about anything else at all, just scripture. You should only speak to one another in scripture. Well, well, good luck with that. That's weird. No, that's also false. What Paul says in the Bible is that we are to have spirit-soaked, gospel-gloried conversations that accord with sound or healthy doctrine. Paul loves this word healthy. It's where we get our word for hygiene. It appears nine times in his pastoral epistles, five times it happens in the book of Titus. Sound, 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 or healthy, healthy, healthy. I want you to talk over coffee, over pasta, while you bowl, while you golf, while you cook, while you're cutting the grass. I want you to talk about things that accord with sound doctrine. Now, all of us can just take a step back and go, how's business? How much of our everyday conversations go like this? Man, I don't know about all that, but here's pretty much what I think it means now that the gospel has been heralded. Things are different now. Or do we just kvetch, 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 gripe and moan? That second thing. But Titus is, Paul says to Titus, I want you to model this teach, talk about, have conversations that harmonize with sound doctrine. Now, that's really a fascinating expression. What's sound doctrine? There is no New Testament yet. All they have is the completed canon of the Old Testament, which prepares for and points to the coming of Messiah, and they have the teaching of Paul as he traveled around with Titus. They spend at least three years together in Ephesus, and then they travel elsewhere together, and then he leaves them in Crete. I want you, Titus, to talk about this. Here's what all history was building toward. There was a serpent in the garden. He deceived Adam and Eve, and there was brokenness and a fracture and fellowship, and the world has been jacked up, that's a Hebrew term, jacked up for centuries. But Titus, I want you to talk about this. Messiah has in fact come. It's not what we expected. We thought he was going to ride in on a horse and eradicate all the baddies, but he did way more than that. He eradicated me and all of my sin, all my flesh, all my death. He's come and he's begun it. Titus, that needs to be the center. That needs to be the core of all of your conversations. And I will tell you, even as a pastor, that's convicting. Because it's so much easier to succumb to the gravity of my depravity and talk about anything and everything else. But Paul says, hey, this is how we're going to establish the church in this area that has no concept of Christianity whatsoever, we're going to start with the dispensation, the distribution of doctrine. Now that might sound boring. You might think, man, if I was planting a church on the island of Crete and they never heard of Christianity before, I'd have a like a skating rink. <laughs> okay? Uh, no, that's not going to actually establish the gospel society of the church that Paul was looking for. So I want you to teach those things that are keeping with sound doctrine. Verse two. Now he's gonna walk through about five different categories of people and he's gonna set the stage for how this is sort of supposed to hierarchically work itself out. He's gonna start with old men because they're the pace setters. They're the ones that are responsible. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. This word self-controlled is gonna essentially show up in every single one of the categories. It is a fruit, singular, of the spirit. When the spirit is active... When the Spirit is leading, loving, guiding, guarding a person, the byproduct is self-control. So it is about being self-control, not trying harder to control yourself, because you can't. You're a knuckle-dragging loser just like I am. But instead, allow the Spirit of God, because of the finished work of the Son of God, to fill us, to lead us, to guide us, and we will be self-controlled. So that, that little expression happens in all the categories. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. This is kind of interesting. Usually the three Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love. But in this case, Paul's like, look, these dudes are old. So how about just faith, hope, and hang in there, dude. <laughs> Finish strong, ear-grizzled, hang in there. But we also have to remember, this is the island of Crete in the Mediterranean basin 2,000 years ago. The old men they're pushing 40. I mean, the life expectancy was not that long. So here's what happens. These guys work for as long as they can. They get old. I mean, they top out at 40. And then they sit around in what's called the insula. Now, the insula is literally these little bitty one-room houses that are quite literally built next to and stacked on top of one another. And it's just like a hamster's habit trail. And this is your family which by the way, is probably the more accurate picture of the church. We think of church and we think massive edifices, not back then. They're all just piled in and on top of one another. There are no secrets. There's no soundproof walls. Everything that happens is for everybody to know. And these older men who were no longer actively engaged in the workforce of the community would sit around, and I know this is hard to believe. I know, just use your sanctified imagination. These older men would sit around and they'd kind of turn cranky and churlish. I know, that's, you can't imagine, but old men would do that and they'd sit around and they would read Fox Scrolls and they'd get all mad about what was going on in the government and they'd go, I didn't vote for that Nero guy. Right, nobody voted for Nero. Anyway, I know it's hard to believe, but that was the normative thing and Paul says, no, the gospel has come. Old guys, look here, old guys, you lead with joy dignified, Do you hear this? venerable. That's how you are to be the pace setter. You're the first face of the kingdom of Christ. Now that means so very much. Old man, he says, be dignified, be self-controlled. Sound, meaning healthy in your faith, in your love. Old fellas, are you characterized by love? Meaning, wanting someone else's good above your own. In other words, old fellas, in the kingdom of God, there is no retirement. It doesn't exist. We've been given an opportunity to use our influence, our experience, our trajectory, our wisdom, our failures to pour into those who are earlier on their journey. Some of you are familiar with a ministry called Young Life that goes after teenagers and students uh, who are more than likely far from God. Uh, all over the world, and there's an there's a area here in Tyler we've been supporting for a very long time. The founder of Young Life was a man named Jim Rayburn. And he and the Apostle Paul would agree with one another. Jim Rayburn always said, because he loved to recruit older guys, he said, students will always gravitate or be attracted to the oldest person in the room they think cares about them. I want you to think about, is that your experience as you go through life? Church, the mall. There you go, trotting past Great American Cookie Company, looking over with, I can't believe those kids today. Back in my day, we wore flat tops and we liked it. Okay. Is that actually helping anybody see the glory of the gospel? No. Paul says, let them know, watch, that you see them, that they matter. I know they might have some different views on pronouns. Let it go. Do you see them? Do you see them who they could be, how Jesus would see them if he were to encounter them? Old men, stay healthy, sound in your faith, in your love, and your steadfastness. Don't buckle. Keep running until you're done. Verse 3, older women, likewise. So you get to do all of that same kind of stuff, older ladies, that you get to have the gospel for all of life. All of that plus and are to be reverent in behavior. There's no better word for reverent that I can give you than, than, than venerable, than um, a, a spiritual gravity of holiness. Where when these sweet senior saints walk by, you just go, yeah, that's what Jesus was like. I hugged about three or four of them up on the third floor before I came downstairs. You know who you are. Because I do. They're just venerable, they're dignified. Listen to what he says. Old women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. That's such a sweet little translation. The word there is devils. Be reverent, not devils. The word devil is diabolos. It's to shoot through you with slander and gossip. See, these women would sit around these insulae, their little uh, you know, habit trails, their little cubbyholes, and their children would grow up and leave, and so they would just sit around with nothing to do but linger over the cup and deliver commentary on the world and everyone else's kids. Can you just imagine a society in which that was normative? I mean, uh, Paul says, no, that's not how the gospel community works. Not at all. Not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach, talk about, not steamroll, not impose, not jerking that poor sweet mom out of the Chick-fil-A playground and go, that's not how you parent your kid. Ah, Stop that. You've lost your voice. You can't be heard any longer. No, but to teach, to share your experiences, to teach what is good. And verses 4 and 5 are for the Younger women, seatbelts on, please, airbags ready for deployment. This is usually where I get fruit thrown at me. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Hold on. Do women really need to be trained to love their kids? Yes. Yes, yes, they do. First to the husbands. We have to remember that most marriages in that day and time, certainly in that culture and context, were not the product of dating and courtship and romance. And there was no pop songs playing in the background. There was no Andy's Custard. There was, hey, you've got a dad. She's got a dad. They just said we're married. And so they had to figure this thing out after they were married. Paul says, yes, that's a picture of the gospel where something previously unlovely, someone else makes a choice to love them for their good wives love your husbands seek his good even above your own wives love your children of course I love my children they're my children really or do you love the idea of your children Paul might ask do you discipline them sometimes sternly well no I want to be their friend that means you love yourself more than your children If you love them, you want their highest good, even above your own pleasure. Even if it makes you sad to discipline them, you must do so for their good. And so Paul's saying, listen, I know you've read all the other household codes that are out there. Roman citizen Senator Seneca wrote a household code that said, treat your slaves as enemies and treat your children worse than slaves. That was sort of the normative expected thing. Paul says, no, 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 no. Love them. Seek their highest possible good even above your own. That was revolutionary. That's one of the reasons the gospel took off in the ancient world. So it gives seven separate little things to be, not so much to do, but seven things that they are to be. They are to be lovers of their husbands, be lovers of their children. They are to be self-controlled. In order to give proper discipline, they must be disciplined themselves. It starts right there. And so we saw I say this all the time, I'll we'll say it again. The greatest gift you can give to your kids is not a PlayStation 5. It is you loving Jesus. Pfft, they won't even care about the PS5. To be pure, that literally the word is holy. Craving righteousness the same way God does. To these young women are to be taught. Working at home, that does not mean what you think it means. It is the home economist, the administrator of the home um, enterprise. Proverbs backs that up. They're probably better at it than we are. Hypothetically, in my case, I can't do math. So there's that. They are to run the household. They are to be kind. The word is good, agathos. They are to be submissive to their own husbands. Again, we talked a lot about this way back in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul's admonition to the church is to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit looks like joyfully, entering into your role and filling that role with purpose, that the word of God may not be reviled. In other words, as the rest of the outside world says, you Christians, you all claim this, but your lives are even more turned upside down than ours are. No, our behavior actually matters as a demonstration, as a defense of the goodness and the glory of the gospel. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I don't know why Paul seems to think that young men need to be urged to have self-control. I've never met any men that need, wait, that'd be all of them. Like that's the one thing, just, just my gosh, tase them, tase them all. Paul says, settle them down, give them some self-control. Verse seven, show your, and this is for Titus specifically, because Titus is a young man. And so he's left there in this difficult situation. Titus is told, show yourself in all respects, to be a model, a pattern, a demonstration. The first follower of the gospel, we might say. Show yourself to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. It's really interesting. In your speech, not just in your platform, proclamation, and preaching, in your conversations. Show dignity. That's really interesting. Right now, some of you are looking at me going, yeah, when is that going to start? I don't know. I'm trying... And sound speech, healthy speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Paul kind of wants to say it this way. If they're going to say something about us, they have to make it up or invent it or create it. And so may they be ashamed of themselves for doing so. Now we do take that very, very seriously because so much is at stake. I never, ever, ever in any way want to be a blemish on the gospel because so many people's hearts and souls and lives and families are on the line. Verse 9, again, this is very similar to what we looked at in Ephesians chapter 5 with bond servants. Again, Paul does not call for the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire. Literally one-third of the population is in slavery. Had Paul called for that, it would have destroyed society as they knew it. Instead, he said, let's have the gospel from the inside out turn that into a thing of the past. It did, and it is still in that process. But Paul says instead in verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. It's really fascinating. In Ephesus and in Rome and in Crete, a lot of the people in these house churches were slaves, bought and sold. That was just a part of the household. That was where life happened. That was the foundational building block of the culture was fathers, mothers, four generations of family, perhaps, children, and slaves, some of which were doctors, some of which were teachers. Paul says, hey, just because you're a Christian now, you don't get to talk back to your master. No, we're actually going to ratchet up our behavior because of the gospel and everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing their stuff. That's what we think happens in the book of Philemon. Onesimus probably stole something from Philemon, and Paul says, we're going to, we're going to make that square. Put that on my account. But showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And remember, Paul is doing spiritual warfare as he's writing to Titus on Crete. He wants that letter read aloud in the church. Servants and slaves, bond servants, when you do that, you are actually beautifying the gospel. You're going above and beyond, not because you have to, It's sort of strange. It's because you want to and you are able to because of the joy that you have. It beautifies the doctrine of God as our Savior because remember, in every city there was a statue that said Caesar is Lord and Savior and we eagerly await him from Rome. Paul says, oh, no, 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 let me remind you. The gospel has dawned. The true king has come. He has stretched the new kingdom back into our midst and even into our mess. He has come. He is our savior. And so we get to live all of our lives accordingly. See, the gospel is for all of life. Well, let me just give four very quick implications. I'm not gonna try to burden you or chain you with any of these applications. This is what you have to go and make a list and go do. No, 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 no. Just some implications in summary of how we can take this text with us. Number one goes like this. The primary way we shepherd is through the scriptures. I love and I recognize and I appreciate that there are many different traditions and trajectories represented as we come together on all three floors. Some of us come from a very formalized, liturgical, high church kind of background. Praise God, and it's beautiful. Some of us come from quite the opposite, where nobody's worn shoes in that church for a very long time, and everything in between, and that's okay, But our distinctive is a church that scripture has the ultimate authority because it is God's word to us. It is the communication of the greatest communicator in the cosmos. And so the issue that we have asked and answered is authority. Where does authority sit in the life of the church? And for us, authority sits in all matters of faith and practice with scripture. Not from a bunch of traditions, not from a bunch of experiences, not from a clergy class, not from anything else. Scripture is the final authority in all faith and all of practice. And so we wield the scriptures at every opportunity so that people will know what God wants them to know. And principally, that's that God sees them and knows them and understands them and loves them so much that he bound up all of the hope and all of the anticipation of the Old Testament and he deposited it into our midst in the person of Jesus. I cannot give the gospel enough. Just more gospel, more gospel, all the time, all the time. It really is the answer and the response to the longing and the cry of every single human heart. So the primary way we shepherd as leaders is through the scriptures. Number two, very quickly on these, God loves people through people. This is not novel. He said this all the way through the book of Romans when he studied that eons ago. God loves people through people. Just in this one little passage, we have Titus, then there's the elders, there's old men, old women, young women, young men, children, servants and masters, all the way down, not to mention the neighbors of the multi-generations that would have been stacked in all over these people. With all those various relationships happening in close nearness and proximity, things typically get pretty messy and dramatic and maybe even traumatic. And the tendency would be to say, so where's God in my marriage? Where's God with this parenting crisis that I'm facing? Where's God with this broken relationship and an estranged sibling that I have? Or in my workplace? We know all about workplace trauma here, I can promise you that. Where's God in all that? Well, he literally could not be closer. He couldn't be closer. He indwells every believer by his spirit, and he's equipped us with his word, the scriptures, which are the ethic and the philosophy of his kingdom. God's plan, as vexing as it sometimes can be, is to love you through someone else in this room. I wonder how many times we've not been willing to receive it. No, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to God. God's going, Jesus. <laughs> It's her. That means our role principally isn't to get noticed and get seen. No, our role and responsibility is to intentionally engage with people in such a way that they know and feel like they are seen and known and loved by God. And so, with all the authority vested in me, which ain't much, but with all the authority vested in me, you all hereby have permission to see someone to walk across the room and know them. You don't even have to work at Bethel. You can simply be nice to someone else as though Jesus was recognizing that person from across the room, and so be bold. I give you all permission, and I go get them, tigers, to see somebody, to know somebody, to understand somebody, and to love somebody. You and I would be blown away if we knew all the hurts happening behind the happy faces on all three of these floors this morning. Number three, very quickly, God leads people through people. With so much at stake in discipleship, trying to lead people to be ever increasingly like Jesus, you'd think there'd be some sort of manual where we could read it letter for letter and not risk getting it wrong. Nope. You and I and our life experiences are the manual how we have employed the gospel in various contexts and circumstances and relied wholly on Jesus, that is what we must pass down to those on an earlier part of their journey because we are gospel people. As I get older and older, I find myself saying things like, you know, I'm not sure about all of that, but here's what I'm 100% sure Jesus would do in that situation, even if it's hard. I've seen that demonstrated in scripture. I've seen that played out in my own life. That's how we lead others is by talking about the same word that Paul gives, to Titus, talking about how the gospel has transformed us, even in non-massive marvelous ways, just day-by-day practicalities, which leads to the fourth thing. Ministry is more example than exhortation. Now that might seem like I'm contradicting myself from my first point, but it isn't at all. If we shepherd people with the scriptures, and we do, but then we live a life of complete deceit and debauchery, then we corrupt the message we are trying to convey. That's interesting. Praise God that he does not call sinless pastors. That's true. And I wasn't even born a pastor like many of my colleagues. Did you know that? They were all born pastors that came right out of the womb and had little collars on them. It was the cutest little thing you'd ever seen. Not me. No, I wasn't even born saved. That's true. Now, I wasn't born a pastor like many, but God does expect a certain level of integrity and honor to be adequate dispensers of the truth we proclaim. I'm also profoundly thankful for grace and mercy, and I cling to those things hourly and minute by minute. We recognize that what happens on these platforms on a Sunday morning is crucially important, but what happens at True Vine on a Thursday evening is equally important. And so pray for us, for our staff, for our elders at all of our campuses, so much is at stake that we would accurately dispense the gospel. Because the gospel is for all of life. Now. Here's the deal in conclusion. If all we ever do is hear a passage like this and try harder when things get tough, then this passage will be nothing but an oppressive law and a burden and a chain to all of us. Because we can't do it. Instead, We are invited to consistently have the gospel in our minds, in our hearts, and in our communities. Remember, community is not just a group of people who get along, who share the same interests. That's not community. Community is a group of people who have a shared love for another. And the gospel needs to be right in the smack dab center of that community so that all these behaviors emerge from the meditations of our hearts and our minds and our communities. It's a work and it's a fruit of the spirit when we're looking at Jesus. So what do we do? You want you want something to do? Here you go. Look at Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. For seriousness, look full in his beautiful face. He's the one that is the perfect walking around embodiment of all the things Paul writes about. He's the one that went to the cross and became all the ways that were fallen and that we falter, so that we would be free to have His Holy Spirit indwell us and produce the characteristics and ethic in and through us. I get it. I get it. And I know that you get it too, because the Bible gets it. The Bible reads us more than we read it. And the Bible gets it because Jesus gets it. Life is a struggle. Life is hard. The great theologian Wesley said, life is pain. If anyone tells you anything different, they're selling you something. You younger people can look up that reference later. Our tendency is to get into relationships and circumstances and think that nobody else can really understand what we're going through. But this text is an artillery shell of grace to remind each of us that God sees us and he knows and he understands and he really has provided a way of escape. See, the gospel is for all of life. It's actually the means by which a person and people get engaged and serve actively and intentionally because as our theme for the book of Titus says, grace works. And so we're thankful for the gospel. May it be in all of our lives all the time. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Father, I pray that those who are gathered in person, those who are watching remotely, that this passage about the gospel will penetrate some corner of darkness in their hearts, their lives, their relationships, whatever it might be. You know. You know way more. And so I pray that everyone who's heard these words will have heard a way better sermon than the one that was preached. Father, if there's anyone in the hearing of my voice who does not know you, who might know some things about you, but is still relying on their own strength, on their own understanding, God, would they know this morning that you see them, that you know them, you understand them, you love them, and you have a wonderful plan for their lives that is the gospel. Father, for the rest of us, I pray that you will continue to encourage us, that we will... uh, not just include, but that we will exist in the reality of the gospel every day and moment of our lives. And when we don't, that we will be sprinters to the cross to maintain fellowship with you. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time, for these people, for this place, for your word, for your spirit, and most of all, for Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.